Hey, we're continuing a series in the book of Judges. It's a book in the Old Testament. <clears throat> and uh, so if you want to turn in your Bible, if you got your Bible app or whatever you want to turn to Judges 4, that's where we're going to be today. Um, this series is all about uh, looking at the nation of Israel in a time where they were on the struggle bus, right? They were having a hard time. They got caught in a cycle uh, that they needed a lot of help with. God was trying to teach them to be his people, to follow him, and to look to him for leadership. That's really what God was trying to teach them during this era, and yet they struggled, um, and there's a reason they struggled. See, the nation of Israel comes out of uh, in slavery to Egypt, Moses leads them out and they go right up to the promised land. God had promised them a land on the earth, uh, a chunk of property that they could inhabit would be their land. Remember uh, when God chose the nation of Israel, he picked one man initially, that was Abraham. And he said, Abraham, <clears throat> if you follow me, I'm gonna make a covenant to you. I will give you land, a, 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 a place on the earth to occupy. I'll give you a seed or seed, and that is offspring. Um, your uh, descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, the sand on the seashore. So he said, I'll give you a nation, a people, and then I'll bless the world through you. And of course, God kept his covenant to Abraham, and this is the realization of that, where they get to move into the promised land. Remember last week, if you missed last week, you might want to go listen to the message, but last week we learned why the, the land of Canaan was a, a group of people that God would send his people into to wipe out. Um, we talked about how um, the Canaanites were descendants of Canaan, a man who was a son of Ham, who was the son of Noah. And so um, on the, no, uh, on the, uh, during the flood, Noah and his three sons and their wives, um, they made it through the flood on the ark with, with the animals that they took on there. They came off the ark to restart the human uh, descendants or human population on earth. And so Ham, one of Noah's sons, committed an act of disrespect and sin against his father, which we saw last week, which brought a curse onto one of his children that, that prophetically um, was placed there by Noah because um, he could see that his son was going to have the same level of disrespect towards God that he had shown, Ham had shown to his father. And so the land, the descendants of Canaan, sure enough, lived in um, utter darkness and wickedness. They, their practices were abhorrent to God. And so um, uh, there was uh, the activity and the effects of satanic influence on them and the way they lived in the world. So God said, um, they're going to be eliminated. And he sent his people in to occupy the land. So under Joshua, who followed Moses, they went into the land. They began to take over and occupy the land, defeating the peoples there. And God went before them. But something happened as they went into the land. They lost heart. They lost the faith. They lost the determination to complete the job, to get the mission accomplished. And so now you have the nation of Israel living in a land where there are peoples among them who are not following God, who are following false religions, worshiping idols, practicing um, uh, their, their practices, fertility cults, um, uh, just their behavior was, was wicked. And so here they are living, the people of Israel living among them. And guess what happens? You start to get influenced by them. Maybe you noticed the bad influences seem to have a lot of impact you've tried to live around somebody, work around somebody, it's a bad influence. 
pretty hard to not be pulled in their direction. Maybe you don't have that problem, but maybe your neighbor does. Maybe the person sitting next to you. You want to look at them and say, stop following bad influences. I just hope the bad influence isn't you. On them, right? But listen, the nation of Canaan, or the land of Canaan was a place where the Israelites are testing. God said, I'm going to test you. Will you follow me? Will you follow me? Will you be true to me? And of course, they went through this cycle as they live in the, in the, in the land of Canaan where they are pulled in the direction of the wickedness of the people around them. They begin to live like them. They begin to live in sin, uh, move away from God and obedience to him. And so they lived in rebellion. And this is the cycle that the nation of Israel went through. They would live in sin, they would live in rebellion, and then God would allow them to undergo a time of punishment. He would allow a ruler from the neighboring countries to, uh, to um, conquer them and to oppress them. And then, as that oppression was, became more painful, over a period of time, all of a sudden, they'd start to cry out for help. When I used to try to wrestle with my dad as I was coming up, getting bigger, thought I could take him, you know, and uh, he would inevitably get me in a compromised position that it would hurt a little bit. I don't know if your dad did that to you, but he'd say, cry uncle. I'm going to keep doing it until you cry uncle. The nation of Israel would, would get under pressure and it hurt. God was doing that to them. Give up. Quit trying to move away from me. Quit trying to live in sin, man. Stop. This is bad for you. It's hard on you, right? You're destroying yourself. And so finally they'd cry, Uncle, God help us, this hurts. And then God would raise up a savior, a judge, to come and rescue them, to lead them out from underneath this oppression. And so this is what's going on in the book of Judges. And so the nation of Israel, last week we learned that um, they were under oppression to a Moabite king and uh, King Eglon. And you'll remember God raised up Jehud, uh, who went and conquered, defeated Eglon. It was kind of graphic. Can I just tell you, this week will get a little graphic too. It's the book of Judges. It's Old Testament. This is real life. It's a little blood and guts. All right. We have children's ministry upstairs. If you don't want your young children exposed to blood and guts, there's going to be a little bit of that this morning. So um, I try to keep it fairly. <laughs> but it's just the way it goes down. All right. So, um, so, uh, so last week, Ehud rose up and he conquered Eglon, got them out from underneath his power. And Ehud was a powerful, strong spiritual leader. He was as a heart for God. He was true to God. He followed God and he, he led the nation of Israel to follow God too. But Ehud died. And uh, sure enough, the nation of Israel, once again, following the cycle, was drawn back to um, the religion, the customs, the practices of the people around them. And so God allowed a Canaanite king to conquer them and subject them and this was a time of oppression, intense oppression. Um, this king was powerful, and uh, and um, and he, God allowed them to suffer during this time. And during this time, God raised up a prophet to represent Himself among the people of Israel and to help influence them and lead them. And even though they're suffering, God provided a leader to bring comfort and to help them in a time of oppression. And this particular leader, the judge this week, is a powerful, strong leader by the name of Deborah. The Holy Spirit was upon Deborah. She was a prophet. 
She was empowered by God. The Holy Spirit was upon her. And when she spoke, she spoke for God. She was uh, the voice piece of God, the spokesperson for God among the nation of Israel. And Deborah was a gifted, respected leader in Israel. We're going to talk about women in leadership today. It can be a little uh, controversial maybe. I'm going to present to you ladies. I'm going to teach a shape class right now with a bunch of young women who have leadership gifting, right? And, uh, and so God does give women leadership ability. Um, the Bible teaches us, though, what leadership's supposed to look like, how to be effective as a leader. And the principles apply to men and women. But the truth is that God made men and women different. And the world we live in today is all about sameness. <laughs> it's trying to get women to act more like men. Please, please do not fall for that. We don't need women in the world that look like men. Like, come on, that's not how it's supposed to be. We're different. God made us different. We have different abilities, different characteristics, different traits, and that's the beauty of how God has designed things. And so understanding and embracing God's design is the answer to understanding how leadership works and how to be effective in the world. And, uh, and so Deborah is an example of a woman who's a powerful, influential leader. And so we're going to look at her today and gain some insight. How do we influence the world around us? The world we live in today, leadership's about power. All young people for the last uh, couple generations, you want to be a leader, you got to be a leader. Uh, get involved in leadership. It's all about uh, control and, uh, and making things go the direction you want. The whole generation of young people today trying to force the world to go in the direction they want. And uh, the sad thing is, that's not real leadership. Let me say that again. That's not real leadership. Um, it's not a leader to force the world to go in the direction you want. Real leadership is influence. It's the ability to, the ability to influence people in a direction. And Deborah's going to show us a fantastic picture of female leadership of a woman who is able to influence the country. Judges chapter 4 Verses four through five, let's look at the beginning of the story. Deborah, the wife of Lapidoth, was a prophet who was judging Israel at that time. She would sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites would go to her for judgment. What does a prophet do? Got to understand her role. To understand that, we need to know what prophets did in the Old Testament. Again, like I said, they're a spokesperson for God. But prophets did essentially two things. They had two roles, and I remember this from, uh, from somewhere. Uh, I learned this, but it's an easy way to remember what prophets do. They have two roles. One of the words is weird, but they're kind of associated. So if I can remember them, anybody can remember them. Okay, so first thing prophets do is they foretell the future. Foretell. So they're looking into the future, and again, the Holy Spirit speaking through them. Uh, predicts and speaks of what will come to pass. And so we see that in the Old Testament. Again, um, uh, prophecies. Typically, we think about those as predicting of the future. The Bible has all kinds of messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Prophecies about what the Messiah would do, who he would be, and, and uh, how he would be identified. And so those are foretelling the future. This was a primary function of a prophet. And, uh, and God told the people to test the prophets. They would come and predict the future. Many people would come and predict the future. And he said, test them because there are false prophets. 
And so actually, in the Old Testament, the people of Israel, if someone came and predicted something would happen, they watched it, it didn't, they were supposed to stone them, get rid of them. They were a false influence on the nation. And so that was a, a high bar. So be careful saying that you're a prophet, right? High bar. Um, 100% accuracy is what's required. Uh, be careful of people that claim to be prophets. They're, they exist today. They say, I can predict the future. Just be careful. Um, I think if we held the bar, the standard Israel did, maybe there'd be a little less of that. I don't know. But anyway, um, be careful. But prophets, real, real prophets of God are able to foretell the future. The other thing a prophet can do is foretell. Forth. Like may the fourth, no, it's forced. No, foretell. <clears throat> so foretell the future, a fourth tell. So they're proclaiming or speaking the truth of God. So they're telling or speaking actual, um, uh, um, the words of God or the knowledge of God, right? The message that God has for his people. And so foretelling and forth telling. Maybe you can remember that. It's an easy way I remember what prophets did. And so they're speaking for God. And Deborah did both of these things. As a prophet, she would have been able to speak again under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Um, She was able to speak scripture or speak at the same level that the Bible is, the truth of God. But Deborah wasn't just a prophet. Not that that wasn't enough. Um, She was gifted by God, and that gifting made her a leader because she was speaking for God. So people needed to hear from her to understand and to be able to discern what God wanted to say to them, what the people should do. But the other role that Deborah played was she was a judge. Now, in order to be a judge, um, again, she didn't just have a position that made her a judge. What made her a judge and the reason that people came to her was based on her character and who she was. They knew that they could come to her and get a fair ruling. You got to understand that the nation of Israel, again, is under a time of oppression and pressure. And uh, like can happen in our families sometimes, pressure can cause things uh, to get a little dicey. Like maybe on a Sunday morning, trying to get the kids up and get them to church. Hey, guys, we got to get ready. Let's go. Pressure's on in my home my kids, that might cause people to get a little crabby. Might have a little more conflict than normal. All of a sudden, we got a fight breaking out. I kind of think that's how the nation of Israel was at this time. They're under pressure and oppression. They're not free. They're not living the way they want. And so in that environment or situation, all of a sudden, disputes break out, maybe a little more than normal. And so Deborah is a person that they knew they could go to. Her character allowed them to trust her for a fair arbitration. She would consider, she wouldn't just pick a side, right? She was able to listen and hear, and she had wisdom, knowledge from God, but she had the character to judge fairly. And so they went to her looking for this role as well, very important leadership role in the nation of Israel at this time. Deborah is kind of known, the way uh, she's described in a sense, is um, that she was a mother to Israel. Again, Deborah was all woman. Wasn't trying to be like a man in order to lead the nation. She was, as a woman, taking the leadership role that women so often take. And we see powerful examples of women who are strong leaders oftentimes in our homes. I know my mother was the strongest influence on my life without question. I spent a lot of time around her. 
And I was the oldest uh, child, her firstborn. And boy, she poured into me principles and instruction and wisdom. She taught me the things of God and she influenced me. She didn't just suggest that I do the right thing. (laughs) She influenced me to do the right thing. This is the powerful role that women, when they walk in who they are as a woman, are able to embody. And the influence that they can have um, is tremendous. Kind of like um, a story from some years ago when Robert Ingersoll, a famous, notorious skeptic, had the opportunity to go and speak at a college in a, in a town. And a couple of college students went to listen to him. And on the way back, after listening to his presentation, one student said to the other, well, I guess, I guess he knocked the props out from underneath Christianity. Well, he kind of proved there's no real substance to that belief system. To which the other student said, no, I, I don't think he did. The other student said, well, what do you mean? What do you mean he didn't? He presented a powerful argument that Christianity is not relevant, not real. There's no substance behind it. The other student said, no, Ingersoll did not explain my mother's life. Until he can explain my mother's life, I will stand on my mother's God. The truth is that the evidence of an individual living for God, who believes in God, all in, fully devoted follower of Jesus, fully devoted uh, devoted follower of God, is a leader and is an influencer. And at the end of the day, that is what creates and produces influence. And when we see that in a person, be they a woman or a man, It's powerful for us. Uh, For women, as they lead and and embody leadership roles, I think one of the powerful passages in the Bible that gives, again, a description of a woman who is on point, who is influencing the world around her, is found in Proverbs 31. And oftentimes this passage is used in relation to women's ministries. But listen to this description of a woman who is a powerful influencer. Proverbs 31 says, who can find a virtuous and capable wife? She's more precious than rubies. Her husband can trust her and she will be greatly, or she will greatly enrich his life. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She finds wool and flax and busily spins it. She's like a merchant ship bringing her food from afar. She gets up before dawn to prepare breakfast for her, for her household and plan the day's work for her servant girls. She goes to inspect a field and buys it. With her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She's energetic and strong, a hard worker. She makes sure her dealings are profitable. Her lamp burns late into the night. Her hands are busy spinning thread, her fingers twisting fiber. She extends a helping hand to the poor, and opens her arms to the needy. She has no fear of winter for her household, for everyone has warm clothes. She makes her own bedspreads. She dresses in fine linen and purple gowns. Her husband is well known at the city gates where he sits with the other civic leaders. She makes belted linen garments and sashes to sell to the merchants. She's clothed with strength and dignity, and she laughs without fear of the future. When she speaks, her words are wise. She gives instruction with kindness. 
She carefully watches everything in her household and suffers nothing from laziness. Her children stand and bless her. Her husband praises her. There are many virtuous and capable women in the world, but you, says Solomon, surpass them all. Charm is deceptive. Beauty does not last. But a woman who fears the Lord will be greatly praised. Reward her for all she's done. Let her deeds publicly declare her praise. It's a picture of a woman who's influencing the world around her. She doesn't just influence her home, though that's her primary area of involvement. She influences the entire culture because of her example. I don't want you to think for a moment if we could set aside the cultural specifics of how she runs her household and be sure that she's running her household. (laughs) But how she does it, the cultural specifics of what it looks like for her, let's put those aside for a minute. Just look at who she is. What are the character traits that she embodies? This is a powerful woman in leadership. She's trustworthy. She adds value. She's industrious and hardworking. Motivated and motivational. She contributes. She doesn't just consume. She's compassionate. She's prepared. She can negotiate and has business savvy. She pays attention to her appearance. She's strong and has dignity. She's confident. She is wise. She can counsel others with wisdom. She's not lazy and doesn't suffer laziness in her home. (laughs) Her kids are working. (laughs) She knows that her appearance is, uh, uh, she knows that her greatest asset is not her beauty or appearance, but her character before God. Can I just tell you that these character traits are required of anyone who would be in a leadership role? Anyone who would influence others? Leadership, as I said, in our world tends to revolve around power and control. Gain a position, and then you can make things happen the way you want. You can get others to do what you want. This is how leadership is thought of in our world. Can I just say it's the lowest level, the most... I gotta be careful. That's not real leadership, okay? Anyone can get a powerful position or a position of power and make other people do what they want, that's not leadership. You know, that's dictatorship or whatever. I don't know what it is, but it's not leadership. Leadership is about to influence people. That, that when you speak, they listen and they want to do what you're encouraging them to do because they can see that you're the kind of person that would be telling them good things, that would be trying to influence them in the right direction. They may not always follow what you say, but they know that it's for their benefit. That's what leadership is. That's what real leadership is. Our world needs more and more real leadership. We have a generation being raised to just get power and control and that that's the way to get things done. Guess what you'll never do? You'll never really change anything with power and control. Lots of examples through history of that. But real change comes about through influence. When you, as an individual, had developed the character, the character so that others will listen to you, and it starts by having them watch what you do. What you do is way more powerful than what you say, right? We all know that, but it's true. Deborah embodies and personifies a Proverbs 31 woman. She's all woman, not trying to be a man. She's all woman, but she is a leader. She's influencing the whole country because of who she is. They know that she has the character to lead. A lot of people get frustrated 
because they don't get a position they want. They can't seem to break through that ceiling to become a leader and to, to make things happen or to, to have that position. And can I just say that oftentimes what is holding a person back is not a bias, though that can happen. It's not just that someone doesn't want to give them a chance, though that can happen. But usually the ceilings that we run into have to do with who we are. Charles Spurgeon said, good character is the best tombstone. Those who love you and were helped by you will remember you. Carve your name on hearts, not marble. Deal Moody said, if I take care of my character, my reputation will take care of itself. John Morley said, no man can climb beyond the limitations of his own character. Opportunity matters. But people with character tend to create opportunity. You don't have to have a position to lead people. You don't have to have a position to lead. You need to understand what leadership is. When you start serving people, when you start helping people, all of a sudden you become a leader because that's what a leader is. That's what a real leader is. Bob Jones says, the test of a man's character or a woman's character is what does it take to stop him? True leadership is powerful, and whether it's a woman or a man making a difference in the world, it has to do with who we are. And if we run up against situations where we can't get something done, correct, correct view of the situation is to say, get a mirror, right? y'all have a mirror at home, look in the mirror and say, what am I doing wrong? What do I need to change? Why is this not working? But what we always want to do is look at everybody else and say, somebody else is responsible for the problem here. But the truth is that typically, too often, at least in my life, maybe not yours, but in my life, it's something wrong with me, some area I need to grow in. The nature of Deborah's leadership is one of wisdom. It's marked by wisdom, courage, and a faith in God. She's a spiritual leader because she has a prophetic gift. God's gifted her to be a leader, but it is because she embodies and personifies um, the description of a woman in Proverbs 31, that's the reason she's effective. God gives her a word. In our story today in in chapter 4, it's an accounting of how God used Deborah to communicate a message of of, uh, God saving the nation of Israel. Once again, when they got in a bad spot, and they were under a lot of pressure, and they started crying out for God's help. Well, Deborah gets a word from God. God gives her a message. It's a message of war. It's a message of war. And so Deborah, being a, the female leader, okay, in the nation of Israel, understood that this particular message was not going to be for her. She would not be the military leader for the nation of Israel. So she called on a man by the name of Barak, or Barak. She said, Barak, I need to talk to you. God has a message for the nation of Israel. And so Barak came to meet with her. Now, I don't, we don't know a lot about Barak. We don't get a lot of information about him, but we can kind of make the, the leap, logical leap, that he was a man that could be a military leader in Israel. Perhaps at some point, maybe under Ehud, he was a strong man of God who was listening to God, following God, trusted in God. And because of that, He had some power. He had some courage. And yet at this time in the nation of Israel, because they're under the oppression of a Canaanite king, Jabin, he had lost that. 
Deborah calls him and says, listen, got a message for you. God is going to lead the nation of Israel to victory and he's going to use you. All you got to do is go to two of the tribes of Israel. You don't need to go to all of them. Just uh, Ephraim and Naphtali, two tribes. Get 10,000 men. Go to Mount Tabor and, uh, and God's going to bring, I'm going I'm to bring the armies um, of this king, this Canaanite king and Sisera, his general, and they'll come and you're going to, Defeat them in battle. God is going to lead you to victory. Well, Barak, um, his response was less than enthusiastic. In fact, his response uh, was frustrating to Deborah. Barak had gotten to the place in his life, rather than looking to God, trusting in God, which gives a man confidence at stepping out, taking a risk, being bold. He didn't have that. He'd been reduced to seeing his situation in the terms, in the earthly terms. He just evaluated the situation as it was. And so he responded by saying, okay, Deborah, I'll go fight. I'll do what you're saying as long as you'll come with. That's like a young man saying, Okay, God, uh, Mom, I'll go to the interview. I'll try to get the job, but only if you come with. <laughs> Boy, that's less than, less than uh, comforting. It's less than what he should have done. Deborah is frustrated with this response, and she says, okay, but there's a cost to it. The truth is that in our lives, just like with Deborah and Barack, that um, as we face challenges, as we face impossible situations, as you will and as you do, the truth is that for Barack, it's the same for you and I. You will see victory in these situations and scenarios when your confidence is in God. Let's continue reading Judges chapter 4 and see Deborah's response to what Barack had to say. Judges 4 verse 9, very well, she replied, I will go with you. But you will receive no honor in this venture. For the Lord's victory over Sisera will be at the hands of a woman. So Deborah went back with Barak to Kadesh. As we said, women were not the military leaders. War in this time was very much hand-to-hand combat. Physical in nature and just by the nature of how God has made men and women different. Men were wired for war. They went out to fight. There's also another reality about a difference between men and women. Men and women both sacrifice for the ones they love, but men are typically the ones that will put their lives on the line to protect their families. That's why when a ship's going down, the women and children get on the rafts first. As I heard a teacher say some time ago, it's not because men have a death wish. <laughs> we'll sign up, yay, let me die. No, it's not really what it looks like. But the way God's designed us is to be that way, to sacrificially lay down our lives when required for our families. And so the men would go out to war. Again, Barak has seemed to lost the courage with which he needs to be living. And it seems that the situation that Israel was in had caused this. Um, This king that was oppressing them continually involved the raping of their women. That's what was happening in the nation, that's what the, this oppressive regime was involved in. And so it was, 
it was um, deflating and discouraging, and he obviously had embodied that sense of defeat and failure. And he didn't see a way out of it. See, this King Jabin, his army had a 900 iron chariots. Now, the Canaanites invented and developed the chariot. They created it. They sold it to Egypt, which is where we hear a lot more about it because Egypt was a huge uh, um, empire. And so there was a lot more uh, down through history. We find a lot more Egyptian chariots. But the Canaanites actually created the technology. And over time, they had developed it and advanced it to the point that at this time in history, the late 1300s BC, they had developed iron wheels, which were much more stable and strong. The old wooden wheels, you know, when they tried to turn too sharp, they'd break in half. That kind of ruined the purpose of a chariot. And so now with iron wheels, the armies were much more agile and powerful. And the primary purpose of a chariot was to move your forces to different part of the battlefield quickly and to respond to the opposing forces and in that way gain the victory. They had speed of response, fast striking ability. And so the king and the opposing force oppressing the nation of Israel, having so much firepower, such an advanced military, that Barak knew that there was no way they could gain the victory. He just couldn't do it. And so they lived under this oppression and he lost his courage. Now, real reason He stopped trusting God, stopped believing God. We can see this and find this in our own lives. When we can fail in a leadership task, fail even to step up and be a witness, a testimony for God, as we're called to do as Christians. Why is it that oftentimes we don't have the courage to do that? Well, because we have lost our, or or just have never acquired a faith in God, to believe that what God says is true and that the power he offers us is real. Look at the individuals throughout the Bible, the characters in the Bible that failed to step up and respond to God in times when he called them to a challenge. Look at Moses, right? Remember Moses, he raised in Pharaoh's home under privilege, education, given all the privilege, and then he went out and tried to save his people by his own strength and killed uh, an Egyptian um, taskmaster and he was... Chased out of Egypt, a failure. And 40 40 years later, God comes and says, Moses, I need you. I want you to do something. And Moses says what? Okay, God, I'm ready. (laughs) All right, let's go. Uh, I can't do it, God. I can't speak. You don't understand. Gideon, next week we'll look at Gideon. He had a similar response to God calling him out. How about King Saul? King Saul was uh, king of Israel, first king of Israel. And he started off pretty good, but... Pretty soon he was going to witches to find out what the future would hold, whether he'd win a battle or not. Just lost it completely. Desperate leader, no courage, no backbone. That's what happens when, as the people of God, we're called to follow God. We can pump ourselves up, try to find fake courage, liquid courage, you know, whatever it is, but that's not real courage, and it doesn't sustain us when things get tough. And the nation of Israel is in a tough situation. As men, one of the ways to tell that we've gotten to this place is we start looking at just the physical realities. Well, I don't have enough money. I don't have enough resources. Well, we can't do that. I don't know. You know, it doesn't look really feasible you know, when you start saying things like that. Now, listen, I get it. We live in a real world and we've got to measure our lives and what we're going to do. And we're called to count the cost before we do something. But the truth is when God calls us to do things, we look primarily, first and foremost, is 
can this be done? If God wants me to do it, could God do it? You know, does he have the resources and ability? Could he make it happen if we were just to trust in him? And Deborah, Deborah's message for Barak is one that's going to require faith. It's going to require that Barak trusts God for a miraculous response. It's not going to be based on what he sees in earthly reality. And that's why spiritual leadership was required here. And he just doesn't step up to that test. I don't know about you, but I've found my, myself at times in this situation where as the man of the house, I'm supposed to provide leadership and direction. But I'm married to a strong, powerful, godly woman. And she uh, bore to us, right, three children, two of whom are girls. They tend to take after their mother. They can recognize weak leadership <laughs> very quickly. <laughs> Doesn't always work out so great. When you got to be the leader in the home, you're not right where you should be, not quite there, right? So it can be a challenge. Maybe you have a challenge like that. You got a strong spiritual woman and you're not a spiritual leader. Yeah, that can be tough, man. You're going to be constantly frustrated, feeling like you just can't quite, why doesn't people, why don't people do what I'm saying? You know, why don't they listen to me? Well, leadership requires character. <laughs> you got to embody something that's going to command the respect of the people that you're leading. If you're just using your position, your physical strength, I mean, if you got to resort to that, once again, that's the lowest level of leadership. That's not stepping up to the challenge. And so just want to encourage you, Deborah understands how to get a response out of Barak. She understands how to interact with him. She's a strong spiritual leader. She had the faith that Barak should have had, but he fails the test. So she does influence him, but she does it because she understands how to lead men. Now, here's one of the things I got to talk about that, that might be a little, I don't know, might, if it makes you feel uncomfortable, man, I'd love to talk to you later about it, okay? But women lead differently than men. And if you want to influence men, you got to understand how men operate and what the language, the heart language of men is. See, for women, God primarily made you to love. And love is the primary heart language of women. This is why God says to husbands, love your wives. Sacrificially love them. And men say, I don't really know how to do that. God says, figure it out. <laughs> figure it out. You're your wife is made, she needs to be loved in order to be led. So figure it out. You got to figure it out. Yes, it's a challenge. But to women, right, an equally challenging command, wives, submit to your husbands, respect your husbands. Oh, yeah, that's, that's hard to do. It's no harder than husbands loving their wives, okay? We got equal challenges on both sides. God made us different. And, and because we're different, we have to figure something out that doesn't come natural to us. Respect is the heart language of a man. That's how men operate. That's what men need in order to function. We love the fact that our, lives, uh, that our wives love us. We count on that. When we can tell that that love is not there, or it's, it's fading, we know we're in big trouble because it comes naturally for women to love. We've really messed up if that love is not there anymore. Because Ladies, you, you just do that. And, and when you get together, uh, female culture is all about, you know, um, conscientiousness and, and being uh, uh, caring and, and, being, and being kind to each other and all that. that. It's really important. And so for women, though, you've got to understand to lead men, you've got to understand the language of respect. 
doesn't come as naturally to you. Doesn't mean you don't understand respect. But you kind of expect, you know, you expect things out of someone if you're going to respect them. And it's right to do. But if you're going to lead men, you've got to understand how to speak this language. We see an example of an apostle, Peter in this case, giving instructions to wives as to how to win their husbands over, how to influence them. First Peter chapter 3, starting verse 1, goes this way. Peter says this, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is God's words, ladies, of how to influence your man or men in general. It says this, in the same way, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. That's respect. Then, every, uh, then even if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any words. That's character. If you'll understand respect, live respectfully, then even your unbelieving husband who doesn't believe the gospel is going to be influenced by your life because of how you live. Even if you don't say anything, you're going to see something there. He's going to be moved. They will be won over by observing your pure and repentant lives. It's character. Don't be concerned with the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, beautiful clothes. Look, uh, women, uh, ladies, wives, uh, yes, men appreciate beauty, all right? Kind of designed that way, visually stimulated, all that. But if you want respect, getting a beautiful hairdo and getting your nails done, I mean, that's great. I'm not discouraging you. You know, you love doing it. But if you want the respect of your husband, if you want him to listen to you, be influenced by you, has a lot more to do with who you are as a person, how you live, your character. Do you understand respect? Are you able to treat him with respect? Now you're going to get somewhere. Now you're going to be able to influence him. You should clothe yourselves instead with the beauty that comes from within. Again, that's character. The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. That's respect. Which, so, which is so precious to God. In other words, he created you this way. You can do this easily. This is how the holy women of old made themselves beautiful. They put their trust in God. Not their husband. They put their trust in God. And accepted the authority of their husbands because God asked them to. For instance, Sarah obeyed her husband Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters when you do what is right without fear of what your husbands might do. Women are powerful influencers. Women can and do change the world and women are leaders. Understanding how to lead is absolutely essential to being effective the Apostle Peter gives an insight into that. Here's kind of how respect goes in, the, in men's world or in a man's world. Harry S. Truman one morning had a staff meeting. He calls everybody in and he had an, an envelope was delivered by one of his clerks. It was a, a, laven, a, lav, a, excuse me, a lavender envelope with a regal wax seal and flowing purple ribbons. He opened it up and the president found a letter from the king of Saudi Arabia inside, which started off with this salutation. Your magnificence, it said. Harry Truman read that. Your magnificence, he repeated and laughed. I like that. So I don't know how you guys talk about me when I'm not here, but this would be just great. You can call me your magnificence. <laughs> well, Truman subsequently sent a message to the United Nations supporting the admission of 100,000 Jews into Palestine. He soon got another letter from the king of Saudi Arabia that started off this way. It said, uh, dear Mr. President, <laughs> listen, um, 
Respect is powerful. Uh, I heard a teacher recently, um, there's a marriage study called Love and Respect, and brilliant presentation of all this. And he was teaching uh, uh, wives on this principle, if you want to get your husband's attention, really impact his life, like deep into his heart. So you can write him a love letter that says, I love you, with all kinds of hearts all around and beautiful stuff and smells like perfume. That's great. And he'll love that. But if you want to speak into his heart, say something like this. Write him a note that says, I respect you. And tell him how much you admire him. Look up to him. That is what's going to speak to a man's heart. Deborah understands this. She challenges Barak. She speaks some harsh words to him. He was not walking as he should as a spiritual military leader in Israel. She hits him hard, really hard. (laughs) Okay, Barak, I'll do what you want. I'll go along and hold your hand on this battle, but you're not going to get the credit for it. You're going to lose something here. The honor that you would normally get that you know you want, it's not going to be yours. Because I'm going to get, well, I'm not going to credit. She said a woman is going to get the credit for this victory. Truth is, Barak needed to see that when we face a challenge, you and I need to see the same truth. When we face an insurmountable challenge attached to God's direction for us, the truth is that God is the one who will fight for you. Judges 4, verse 14, Then Deborah said to Barak, Get ready. This is the day the Lord will give you the victory over Sisera. For the Lord is marching ahead of you. So Barak led his 10,000 warriors down the slopes of Mount Tabor into battle. When Barak attacked, the Lord threw Sisera and all his chariots and warriors into a panic. Sisera leapt down from his chariot to escape on foot. Then Barak chased the chariots and the enemy army all the way to Herosheth Hagoyim, killing all of Sisera's warriors. Not a single one was left alive. It's a complete rout. I don't know if God sent a torrential rain to, to create a bog, right, where the chariots got stuck. But this imposing force, men and women, when you face an impossible situation, but you're following God's direction, you're stepping out to do what God says, you may think you understand the lay of the land. You may think you understand what's going to happen. God can change things in an instant, and he will, when he steps in to work and fight on our behalf, which he's promised to do. Too often we think it's all about us and the situation is what we can see. I don't know what your impossible situation is, but God did what he spoke through Deborah he would do. And he confused the armies. He slowed down the chariots to the point that the armies of Israel easily defeated them. Chased them all the way out of the country And this provided the catalyst for getting out from underneath the king of Canaan's leadership. Sisera, powerful general who had oppressed the people, jumps out of his chariot. He runs to a safe house. One of Moses' relatives, one of Moses' in-laws, this man had moved away from his tribe from the people he lived with. He was isolated out by himself. We don't really know why, but he had a friendly relation with King Jabin. So Sisera runs to his tent thinking he'll find a safe place to hole up till the drama passes, the heat passes. He knew that Barak would be uh, hunting for him. And so Sisera runs up to this tent. Well, uh, the man of the house isn't home, but his wife, Jael, is home. 
She goes out and says, come on in. Come on in, uh, sister. I got a place for you. It'll be safe in here. Come into my tent. So she brought him in. This would have been common in this time. And he could have depended on uh, a, a loyal um, um, partner, right? A loyal person would, would have protected him. He said, if somebody comes to the door, tell them nobody's here. And, and she would have done that. He could have expected that. And so he, he lays down. He's exhausted, perhaps from the storm, perhaps from just running on foot, fleeing death, but he gets there. He's tired. He asks for some water. Jail gives him some milk. I know when I used to wake up in the middle of the night, my dad said, get a glass of milk. Help you go back to sleep. Soon Sisera is fast asleep. JL grabs a tent peg and a hammer and she quietly sneaks over to Sisera as he lays on his side on the floor. She puts the tent peg right over his temple and hits the tent peg through his skull. <laughs> Goes into the ground, it says. She might have hit it more than once, I don't know. Might have been a little passion in those blows. Who knows what Sisera did, what he was responsible for, but Jael gets the victory. She got credit when Barak comes running up to the tent. There, the work has already been done. Too often, friends, we look at what we can do and God wants us to look at what he can do. A.W. Tozer said, God is looking for people through whom he can do the impossible. What a pity that we plan only the things we can do by ourselves. Are you more focused on your situation? Or are you focused on God? The Bible teaches us not to think so much about ourselves and what we can do, but focus on God and what he can do through us. I don't know what your impossible situation is. I have no idea, but I know you probably are facing one. And maybe you've gotten discouraged and maybe you've thought, there's just no way to win this. Uh, look at the situation. We're outnumbered. There's no way it could happen. I want to remind you that we serve a God who has the power to raise the dead. The same work or the same power that, it, that raised Christ from the dead lives in us. The power of God is within you. Will you trust him for the impossible when he calls you to step out Will you regain the courage that comes from following God, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? There was a little boy that was on a flight years ago traveling um, to see his parents, and there was a man who was a seminary professor sitting next to him. Uh, the seminary professor saw him reading, the little boy reading his Sunday school booklet that he had gotten, and the little boy was looking at it, trying to learn some stuff. And the professor thought he'd have a little fun with him. And he saw that he was reading about God. And he, says, he said, little boy, if you can tell me something God can do, I'll give you a shiny red apple. Little boy thought for a minute. He said, mister, if you can tell me something God can't do, I'll give you a whole barrel of apples. God, thanks for your call on our lives. Thank you that you challenge us. You give us challenges Life is challenging and we all face things that we don't know we can face. We don't know if we can overcome. But God, you want to you breathe into us courage and confidence that comes from knowing that you're our God and that we're walking with you and we're following you and that your power is within us. God, you've called us to influence the world towards you. Sometimes we do that from a position. But at all times we can do that from a presence that involves a servant's heart a care and concern about others, a view to bring your power, your grace, your forgiveness to a world desperately in need. I pray that you would continue to empower us, help us to keep our eyes on you, 
Make us the people who can influence the world around us to find salvation in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.